You are listening to Geekish Cast, an Astro Panda Production Network's podcast. This is Morgan Johnson, host of the Tracy Comic Show, inviting you November 4th and 5th at Northgate Village in Tracy for two days of family fun and to meet our special guest and creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kevin Eastman, and to receive a copy of our first edition, Harmony, the first deaf superheroine ever. So come and join us. Geekish Cast, episode 164, with our guest, Bobby Blaze Smedley, professional wrestler, author, wrestling coach, wrestling consultant. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and introduce our guest. Hey everybody, thanks for coming back. Again, I'm your host, Jeremy. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Ollie the Greyhound, and joining us today is Bobby Blaze Smedley. How you doing, Bobby? Hey man, I'm doing great. Thanks, Jeremy, for having me on your show. I appreciate well, it. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate you doing this. I know that you uh, regularly do podcasts for the wrestling world. I, I know I've heard you on the 605, but who else's shows do you frequent? Uh, booking the territory. I do uh, 605, obviously, like you mentioned. I do mm-hmm. booking the territory quite, uh, quite a bit. In fact, I just done one based on a, uh, where I debut on Smoky Mountain. It'll be out soon. And then, um, uh, and, and, unless I talk to someone from the 605 um, or booking the territory first, I very seldom do uh, too many other podcasts, to be honest with you. Once I, I, I do it here and there. The first book, I learned my lesson. I'm real careful on who I do podcasts with because things have changed in the last three years in the podcasting world, obviously. And I love podcasts. I listen to, I have a select few I listen to, about four or five that are wrestling related, and then also a couple that are non wrestling related. I, I'm huge on listening to podcasts. I think you learn so much on them. But primarily, I go through 605 or Booking the Territory, and now it's my pleasure to build yours, you know, the uh, geek is cash. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I appreciate it quite a bit. I mean, you've got a varied career, so I don't even know where to start from. But let's go ahead and start with what you're doing now, and then we can focus on things from the past a little bit later as we get rolling. So you are currently, you have two books out on Amazon, Pin Me, Pay Me. Uh, have boots will travel, and then I kicked out onto the education of a wrestler. As somebody coming from the world of pro wrestling, when, at what point in your life did you realize you liked to write and tell stories? I've always written. I'll say that I've always liked to write. Um, so I, I can't pinpoint, but I'm, you know, I, I, I always had a journal going on at some point. And pin me, pay me. There's actually a page of. Uh, Place, something that took place that I wrote in a journal from like 1983 about how one day I'll be a professional wrestler after I had um, uh, went to some matches in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, uh, so as far back as 83, I had you know written a little bit about wrestling here and there. But uh, I just always enjoyed writing. Um, my favorite novel is um, The Great Gatsby. When I read that my junior year in high school, I mean, my God, I just... And I'm, I'm an avid reader. I, I, I just, there was something about that book that just caught me, you know, and it, it made me become a reader. I had a teacher in ninth grade that made me read 
made our, made our class read, um, great expectations. And um, being an athlete, you know, I kind of got lazy and my grades were always, you know, average. But she said, you know, you need to step it up. You need to catch up the class. You know, you think because you play basketball, football, blah, blah, kind of a challenge. And I took that challenge and I started, I started reading chapters ahead of uh, um, uh, great expectations. So then I knew, because I was a slow learner when I when I started off reading early on, I talked about that in my second book, my, my formal education. You know, I may not even sound like it, but I have a master's degree in communication. When that ninth grade teacher told me, you know, you need to uh, keep up the class and this and that, going from someone that's been held back in school to, to learning to read, uh, blah, 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 to ninth grade saying, you know, when she'd ask a question, I'm two chapters ahead of the rest of the class. I said, you know, I really like to read, and I attribute that to my mother. My mother was an avid reader. And, uh, but writing, I always took notes and journals, and, and I, I always wrote those type of things. And then a friend of mine said to me, you know, you have uh, some downtime. Um, and, and many people know or may not know that when I wrestle professionally, um, you know, I, I, I obviously, like a lot of other wrestlers and, and football players and other athletes, you know, injuries accumulate. Mm-hmm. And so I continued to uh, be an avid reader, but also someone said, man, you ought, you ought to write a book. You, you sit around and a guy will be listening to this and the guy will ask you that. And, and so that's kind of how I started um, Pin Me, Pay Me. I started writing down, like, even if it's a napkin or a, a, at a restaurant or a, a paper bag at a store, uh, tear a piece off or a receipt out in the car. Someone say, hey, Bobby, uh, did you ever wrestle so-and-so, or do you know so-and-so? And, and I'd start telling my story, and I'd stop rambling in like two seconds. So I'd tell that story, and I'd go to my car, or I'd lean over the bar and grab that napkin, and, and I'd write down like, wow, this guy just asked me about Dan Severn. Uh, did I know him? Did I wrestle him? Or they actually had seen the match or whatever the situation was. And I, I started writing stories, and I started putting them together. 2009 is when I really started thinking about a book, but it took me until 2013 to put that book together because I only had like six stories. And then someone suggested, why don't you write a book? And I had all these notes. And I pulled out like five different notebooks. And I had just a, just a shitload of notes, to be honest with you, about so-and-so asked me about this. And I wrote about it. And then I realized, like, man, I've got like five paragraphs. That's a whole story. All I got to do is add a beginning and ending or whatever. And so, uh, and then publishing uh, changed, uh, you know, through the course of time. And, and from the time of 2009, when I started writing, I looked into getting published. Um, some things have changed until I got my first book published and paid me in 2013. And I had sent all these notes, and then I just had to really start combining, like, okay, where have I been? What have I done? And put these stories around that. And then next thing I know, to be quite honest with you, um, people started saying, man, I wish you'd written about this or that. And so the second book started coming. I started saying, man, I'm just collecting a lot of damn notes. Writing, I love writing. Um, I try to write every day. Uh, but it's kind of like the old grandmother story where, you know, she she's cooking a pot of spaghetti and pulls some out, throws it against the wall. Some sticks, some doesn't. And then you think, this story, when people, when I tell it, people are gathering around. That's a good story. Uh, maybe that's something you use. And some of it, you're like, you know, you put a little humor behind it or you add something to it more dramatic. You say, well, that just slid down a wall. That's not any good. And it is. So everything you write is not going to be perfect. Uh, Mark Twain had this saying, you know, write free until someone offers to pay you. 
So I just kept writing and writing and writing. And I'm a published author, and who would have thought? So I set goals, and, and to write a book, that was one of my goals. Once I set it, I said, okay, I'm going to get this thing. I'm going to write this book, and I'm going to get it published. We'll deal with the stereotype here real quick. So you've got a master's in communication. I don't think people would expect to hear a pro wrestler who has a master's in communication. Every time I start listening to stories from wrestlers, that you know, people who are around wrestling, they're all much more intelligent than people would normally think. Have you found that to be pretty true across the board, or do you think you're an exception? Mm-hmm. Hey, man, I'm doing great. Thanks, Jeremy, for having me on your show. I appreciate it. No, you know what? I, I, I don't I don't know that I'm the exception. I'll say that. Be, because I've met a lot of professional wrestlers. Well, since I've been a fan forever and a day. Been around a business since I was 15. As far as setting up the ring and, and just doing little things and all that. I talk about all that in my books. I know a lot of guys, man, are just intelligent. But there's also, you know, you got to count a lot of them, you know, some of them graduated high school, got right into professional wrestling. But there's a lot of guys with degrees out there. They might not have a master's, but they finished their college degree. And so, no, I don't know. Maybe the master's is a, um, a little step above. But a lot of these guys have PhDs in life and common sense and financing, being smarter with their money than I have or learn to uh, how to get over better with the fans or promoters. Uh, PhDs in psychology, <laughs> you know, when, when I had an option, I had an option after I finished my master's to get into this PhD program, and I actually spoke to a person I know um, that, that went and mm-hmm. finished his PhD, and not, not involved in wrestling, he was involved in uh, uh, international uh, steel workers and things like that, thought, you know, I, man, financially I probably couldn't afford it, you've got like seven years once you start the program, and I thought, you know what, this book will be my PhD because I have a PhD in life. You know, um, I've been on five or seven continents. I've met people from all over the world. To be honest, you know, yeah, sure, you're going to meet it. Uh, sometimes you're going to meet a dummy or the guy that doesn't have a plan B or you don't, have, you know, when I say plan B, it doesn't have a backup plan. They think, oh, you know, and it's like I, I used to do speech, uh, speeches to, uh, so let's just use sixth grade children. And I, and I said, what do you want to be? What course? The boys, they want to be in the NBA, the NFL. And, and some girls, they would raise their hand, would be a teacher or a nurse or a doctor. But anyway, you know, your chances of doing and living those things uh, change as you get older. So you can't say, okay, to a sixth grade student, okay, honey, here's your needle. Go give that patient a, a shot. You know, you have to continue your education if you want to be a nurse or a doctor. You know, and I said, guys, you know, I'm not trying to bust your bubble because, man, when I was in the fifth and sixth grade, if I had someone that performed all over the world as a professional athlete, I wanted to be in the NBA. Once I got older, I realized I'm one step too slow. I used to jump like a son of a gun. My knees are shot now. But I thought for sure, you know, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to be in the NBA when I'm, you know. So I understood when these kids are telling me these answers back, and I would say to them, have a backup plan. Continue your, your education. If your education requires high school, or if you would like to pursue being a doctor or a nurse, that requires going to a college or a university, or if you would like to be, um, and, and it doesn't matter, and I would tell them, you know, whether you want to be a teacher or a plumber 
or, or whatever you want to do. And, and I always tell people this, even people I help today, and I work with a group of young people this evening, um, probably from 19 until 29, just guys that are working. I wash them, I train them, I critique them, this and that, blah, blah. And I try to tell them, have a backup plan because I don't care if you're a teacher or a custodian or a street sweeper or a doctor or a professional wrestler. You know what the best thing you can do is to be the best at that that you can do. If they say, and it goes back to, I tease around a lot of booking the territory with Mike Mills. Uh, and, and the thing is, we, we joke around about that, pin me, pay me is part of life, but that's this. If they tell you, wake up every morning and go sweep the streets, and you get up every morning, and you get there, and you'd be the street sweeper there is. If you're a teacher, you'd be the best teacher there is. If you're the best custodian in that school, be the best, you, you, you show them. I'm going to mop the floor like no one else. And that, that's kind of what I, you know, it's kind of motivational. It's kind of inspirational. But it, but it's reality, man. Uh, when you're talking to younger people, like I, like I have done in communication, you know, you know, giving speeches to career day or, or this, that, tell them like, um, if you ever want to write a book, you start writing now. Every day of your life is a new story. You start fresh. Get up, you know, whether you have fresh ideas whether your week went by or your months went by, you know, don't wait forever. Keep notes. Um, start writing now. And, um, you know, Essie Hint was like 16 years old when she wrote um, The Outsiders, you know what I'm saying? So start writing stuff now. And, and then, like, I just had a bunch of notes, man. And when I went through those notes, I realized, like, man, I've got three-fourths of a book here right now just with notes of, of stuff that, like, uh, without rambling on any longer, is, is, is basically whatever you choose to do, set your goal, try to do it. When you accomplish that goal, it's great. But if you fall a little bit short mm. and you end up doing something else, then you be the best that you can be at being that something else, whether it be a writer, yeah. artist, uh, a musician, uh, uh, entertainer, or a teacher, plumber, or you know, carpenter, or a carpet cleaner, you know, whatever it is, street sweeper, like I mentioned. Then, by God, you know what? If that's your job, then you do it. You take pride in it, and you get up and do that. And that, that's kind of what pin me, pay me. And that's the bottom line of it. Yes, sir, boss. I'm not going to look up. I'm going to sweep this room. I'm going to make it the best damn cleanest room in this building, and I'm going to go to the next one, you know. Yeah, um, you know, and that's something you see more of in Japan, too. People take even what we would consider to be a menial job here in the States, like McDonald's or Floor Sweeper, and they take pride in their work. Man, and, I'm so glad you mentioned McDonald's in Japan. Yeah. You go to Japan, and you order, and you've got someone taking your order, and you've got another person not walking, but running, you know, not a 100 yards uh, dash, but they're already running to get your order and having it out there. They take pride. They have a job. Yeah. That I'm ringing you up, and while I'm ringing you up, because they call them, since uh, we have value meals here in Japan, they have what's called sets, and a set means includes a prize and a soda. And so as you're ordering that, and they see that ring up, there's a, you know, some little 18, 19 year old, maybe 20, you know, I don't know what the age, it's hard to determine, you know, how old a person is with that job, but they're taking so much pride in it. Mm -hmm. They're actually jogging back to, this guy wants two Big Macs, a large fries and a soda, and they're, they're like busting their ass to get it and get it out to you. It's amazing. A buddy of mine lived over there teaching English for four or five years. Wow, and uh, right. he went to he went to a concert where 
at the concert, there were things that, you know, like gifts for the audience were underneath the chairs. And everybody there left the stuff behind because nobody explicitly told them to take it. Well, they're big on discipline and honor. And I can see them uh, without, you know, who your buddy is and going to this concert. But if, but if you and, and myself and your buddy went to this concert, if there was something underneath our chair and, and, and just being in Japan... You and I and your buddy would honor that as well. Mm-hmm. If they said, if they explicitly said, if everyone look under your chair, you what they you know have gift or presento, and they do that a lot when you go over. I would always take something and you know they they give you they give you a gift and oh no no Bobby this presento to you you know from sponsor or whatever my you know this is fake accent or whatever. Right. But anyway, unless they said, you all may now reach under your ta- chair. There's a special prize. Take it home with you. You know, I, I do want to talk about your books, and definitely for people listening, if you go to geekishcast.com, this will be uh, episode 164. In the notes, I will have links where you can go to Amazon and buy it. So so when you were a kid, you decided, hey, I want to do pro wrestling. You were, like, already, like, I love this. And you grew up in the Kentucky area, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, yes. I, I, was, I was born in Kentucky, um, stayed here six months, and then I went to Baltimore, Maryland until 19... 19- Give away my age. Let's do some math. Till 1969. So the first wrestling I actually saw was the old WWWE on TV with an aunt of mine, or an aunt, as we fucking say, because I ain't gonna be politically correct. I fuck that. I'm just she's my aunt and my grandmother. And uh, I didn't move back to Kentucky until, uh, like I said, about 69. But about 70. Four or 75, somewhere in that time frame, my brother comes running outside. We're in Kentucky, and um, it's just me and my mom and my brother. My mom had divorces at the time, um, and, and he comes running. He goes, you got to see this. You got to see this. You know, I'm like, what are you talking about? We talk, we go in, boom, there's wrestling, pro wrestling on TV that I haven't seen since 1969. So I went from a 66-year-old kid to about a 10-year-old kid that I hadn't seen any wrestling. So at about 10, I started watching every, my brother told me, he said, you got to watch this, you got to watch this. And, and, uh, the next one, you know, they announced, you know, on next week's program. And it was the old Memphis, you know, wrestling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it came on every Saturday here. It was pre-taped. Uh, it came out of, um, Lexington, Kentucky. And so every Saturday at 11 o'clock or noon, it just depended on the time frame. They switched it up a couple of times. So I brought up with a Memphis wrestling from about age 10 on. I'm sorry to interrupt your question, but that's oh, just no, no, kind no. of what, that's what happened. I had seen the WWWF, uh, back in the day. My aunt, she loved it. My grandmother, both my grandma, at one point, my entire family lived in Baltimore. And then we got all fucked up. And, and my mom passed away six years ago. This past March, and um, you know, I asked her a bunch of questions. It is, it is basically it just got fucked, and we end up being stranded here. Basically, me, my mom, my brother. So anyway, um, that's and that's in the second book about my family and my brother. I mentioned a little bit in my first book, but anyway, yeah. Long story short, from like so seventy four, seventy five, it started getting to Memphis, and then we started getting ICW. Uh, maybe around. Uh, I want to say like 77, 78. I want to say 78. I could be wrong. Uh, what happened to me was December, I want to say it could be November of 78, 
and that's where I started off Pin Me, Pay Me. Uh, um, basically, my buddy and I, we had, I stayed over his night, over his house. His dad was my basketball coach and one of them. And uh, we got up the next day, and we get, he said, you know, you boys up, you're ready to go. We're going to practice. It's a snowy December morning. And we walked through the living room, and his dad had went out to start the truck and warm it up because there was a light snow going down. And um, I used to always, you know, I was dedicated to watching that show every Saturday at, you know, 11 o'clock or 12. And um, I come through the living room, and they have their TV on, and one of his brothers, one of his older brothers, was actually watching wrestling. And there's handsome Jimmy Valiant. He wasn't Boogie Woogie, then he was handsome Jimmy Valiant. And he's like, Woo, mercy daddy, you know, doing his promo. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to come out here and brag about this. And he named two or three things. And I'm not even going to brag about my 19-inch biceps. All I'm going to tell you is Kingfish, because, you know, he always called Jerry Lawler Kingfish. When I come to Mempho Town, what I'm going to do is he's cut his promo. And um, I look at my buddy and I said, that's what I want to be when I grow up right there. And so my dad's buddy who had started the truck come walking back through and he said, Geez, that, that, that's pure craziness right there, Smed. My last name is, you know, Bobby Blaze Smedley. And then people used to call me Smed. And he goes, that, that there is pure craziness, man. So we leave after the promo and get in the truck. And, you know, we got about probably a mile and a half, two-mile track down to the to the school to do our basketball practice. And the whole way down there, you know, me and my buddy, we're just talking. And then we're talking about girls. We're talking about basketball. And like 50-year-old kids do it, I'm like, I start talking about, you know, man, that pro wrestling, man, that professional wrestling, them guys. You're talking about a guy that's 5'9", 135, but I was athletic as hell back then. I could touch the rim when I was 5'9". You know, I, I, I could dunk a basketball by the end of my ninth grade year. I mean, that's not bragging. That's just how athletic I was. But um, and, and so that's kind of how it started. Guys down like, man, there's some pretty tough guys there. And, uh, you know, them guys are big and this and that. And I was like, I don't care how... I'll get bigger, you know, I'll get stronger, I'll, you know, whatever. But, of course, at that time, it was just, you know, shit, 15-year-old kid talking. But I had missed matches. Uh, I had went to matches, you know, for five years at that point, you know, because uh, 10 to 12, me and my brother, we lived just a five block. We lived right beside McDonald's, and it was five blocks from the armory, and we would go. Every time it was in town, anyone that was in town. They had a local group. They used to have the Scuff and Hillbillies, uh, uh, Chuck Conley and Rip Collins. But then ICW started coming, and uh, my brother and I was over there all the time, and, and we started setting the ring at a young age and helping carrying you know, the stuff in. And we went from those guys that would run down to the corner and buy you a soda pop to like, hey, we live right by McDonald's, and it's just a, you know, we do a shortcut, even though it's five blocks. We cut it down to about three, probably, because we could cut through this, uh, a tannery. And like, hey, come here. I need uh, five hamburgers and two cups of coffee. And, and me and my brother, you know, we were running there and like, you know, okay, here, here's your order, man. And it's got the town. And we had run back right to where we had just left our house. And we were like, you know, we need five hamburgers, like, you know, fucking. 25, 26 cent at the time, yeah. coffee's a dime or whatever. We like run back over and give it to the wrestlers while they're setting up the ring, and that was the old ICW. So I just was, a, and by that time we wasn't paying tickets because we was in. You know, we, we weren't in, but we were in, you know, and uh, saved our money. So uh, we watched shows, and, but yeah, that, so I was just a, I just a fucking enthusiastic fan, Mark, whatever, but I, but I knew I loved 
that the fact that these guys, to me, what they represented was everything I was. They was big, was tough, they were strong, and they were like bad motherfuckers that you knew that, you know what, when they said, when they got on TV and they said, hey, I'm going to take so-and-so and I'm going to do this, I'm going to snap his vertebrae, I'm going to brain buster him, or I'm going to do this and do that, I'm like, you know, I like, man, these guys are for real, man. You don't mess with them. And I don't care what I saw in the ring. And, and, you know, at that time, Memphis came a couple of times, but mostly the ICW started taking over and they run a monthly town with Rip Rogers and, and Macho Man, Randy Savage, yeah. and the Popos and the whole group. When them guys came, man, they they put on, I talk as an older adult to, to people now for the last 10 years of, of guys I grew up with or of guys that were a couple years older or younger, give or take. And we see them, we're like, do you realize how much talent we saw come through here? You know, and eventually I went to Huntington, West Virginia, Charleston, West Virginia, Lexington, Kentucky, and started going to bigger shows, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's just kind of how I started was just as a fanatic no, That's cool. Fan. Um, uh, and for those of us, you know, Westerners and Yankees, uh, ICW was the company started by Macho Man Randy Savage's dad, Angelo Poffo, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, yes, sir. And it was kind of an outlaw uh, opposition company to what was an NWA territory at the time. I, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so let me know if I'm getting something wrong here. You're doing great, okay. yeah. Yeah, so, because at that point, it was, the Jarrett family was already running that area, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jarrett Welch, I guess, the um, uh, Memphis was already running. They had already built up to... Uh, they had moved over to Lexington, Kentucky. They were already running Louisville, but they hadn't got into Lexington on a regular basis. But eventually, they started running Lexington once a month and this and that. But, but ICW, International Championship Wrestling, a bunch of those guys, I guess, out of Knoxville, uh, include my trainer, uh, Boris Malenko. Um, I don't know all the guys involved, but, I'm, but I think it was like the Malenko. Uh, I, Popo obviously brought, you know, his son Savage and Randy and, and Lanny Popo mm-hmm. and Linko and there, there are several more. It could be, uh, oh man, I want to say Ronnie Garvin and Paz Watley and those group. Those guys were all working for ICW, but they had broken away from, they basically exposed the business. They would go on TV, but we stumbled across it one Sunday night, like 1130, like we'd have school like the next day or something, mm-hmm. and you're flipping through your three or four channels, and boom, they're wrestling like 1130 on a Sunday night. And like, what What the hell is this? And, and then, of course, when you're a wrestling fan, um, you know, within a few days, it's like, hey, by the way, did you see something? They started running actually Kentucky, and they ran several Kentucky towns and a couple of uh, Missouri, which is way out west of me, uh, Ohio, very little, but uh, Indiana. They started running opposition of Jarrett, you know. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of history involved there, but yeah, it was an outlet. It's probably considered, I guess, what you'd consider one of the first outlaw groups, if you will, that ran opposition of someone that was uh, with the Memphis Territory, which was involved, which they, they had some NWA, but there's also involved a lot with the AWA, because Lawler, you know, I think um, they would bring in Bachwinkle and some of those guys, but at one point they brought in Flair for them, and so they were just, uh, Memphis was just a Memphis, just a tremendous territory, so you could see anyone come in and go out of that territory from, you know, them bringing in Jimmy Valiant from, quote, New York City, when he'd maybe be working over in Indianapolis for the, uh, uh, for that company, uh, who they, the Bruiser maybe, or um, I could be getting that wrong, um, Crusher or whoever had that territory. But they would, it, 
it was, but the Popos, man, they ran this little outlaw group that had a lot of talent. They had Pez Wadley, like I said, Malenko, uh, Bob Wharton Jr. Um, they had some, uh, Ronnie Garvin. And then they would show up at Rough Arena, buy a ticket, stand up in front row, freaking challenge, you know, guys from the, the fucking uh, Memphis company. That's you know? crazy. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, it was wild. Uh, that, that's just hearsay. But I had also, at this point, I'm getting to the point where a little bit ahead of myself, I'm getting to where I'm at college age, like 18, 19 years old, and I'm getting a Lexington the paper, and I'm seeing an ad for, I'm watching both programs, and then also, because it's like four years has passed, and it's been going back and forth, and I'm getting also where, um, you know, you see an article about, um, or excuse me, an ad in the bigger newspapers, because I live in a smaller town, but, but Lexington was huge. We got Rough Arena held 23,000. You know, crazy basketball, UK basketball fans, you know, and you got uh, Memphis running that once a month now, and you've got uh, these guys from ICW stand up and challenge him. And anyway, long story short, uh, or to make it longer, your choice. Uh, no, seriously. <laughs> um, you know, they had the competition there, and they were challenging these guys, but ICW, they ran all these National Guard armories, and, and they would draw between 500 to you know, I said a big house where there would be probably 1,500. I could be wrong. Uh, but usually, you know, three to 500 people. But, man, I was in that crowd, and those three to 500 people, we were crazy wrestling fans. And like I said, as I talk to older guys now or guys that are older, like myself, we're like, man, do you realize how much talent we saw between Memphis coming through here a couple of times and ICW coming through here? To be in the middle of fucking nowhere, because NWA even come to Huntington, West Virginia, Columbus, Ohio, and Charleston, West Virginia. Um, so those were towns that I got older that I could drive to or catch a ride with, you know, guys. That was like, holy shit, man, the NWA's coming. Um, you know, we got to go see, you know, uh, Bruiser Brody and uh, uh, Harley Race, uh, uh, the Rock and Roll Express, you know, Ric Flair. We had to go to those shows too, you know, fucking mark it out, man, you know. But uh, but loving it because we love the business, you know. Oh yeah. Uh, so. Um, I'm I. So when WCW closed, I kind of gave up on watching pro wrestling. Besides here and there, just you know, like with my kids or something. Um, but for me, I, I first discovered it with you know the WWF in the mid '80s, and then I discovered NWA and Fritz von Erich's WCCW. And I, it was a, the eighties were a great time to get into wrestling because just like you're talking, you're flipping through the channels, yeah. 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, you know, nine thirty on a Sunday night. Holy shit. On these UHF channels, you're getting shit from every part of the country you can think of and yeah. guys, you know, you know, you might see Abdullah the butcher. He, you'd seen once or twice here and then disappears. And <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Fuck. It was a great time. It was a lot of fun. I love wrestling. And, you bring up Man, uh, Macho Man Randy Savage. He was in when I was a kid. Even when he was a bad guy, he was my favorite. In the yeah. '90s, though, and I'm going somewhere with this. In the '90s, I saw a guy on WCW television who might have been the greatest technical wrestler I have ever seen, and it was Dean Malenko. And I bring that up because Dean Malenko and Boris Malenko are guys you trained with. Yes. Uh, do you remember how you got hooked up with them? I mean, you know, did you? Absolutely. Let's hear that. Well, you know, I wanted to be a wrestler. I was around these shows. You know, hey, you know, I, I, I watched the guys, you know, a little bit younger, like I said. And 
So anyway, at one point, so I started lifting the weights. I started running. I started conditioning, thinking, you know, I'm going to be a wrestler. I'm going to be a wrestler. And um, so what I did is uh, I met a local guy who lived about 100 miles from here on a, on a local show that he'd come in and done uh, a job for the uh, uh, ICW. And I met him outside the uh, building. And so here's what happened. I saw an ad. Uh, it wasn't even an ad. Let me take that back. There was an article about Bam Bam Bigelow and Sports Illustrated. He was sitting there with Larry Sharp behind him, and it was introducing the Monster Factory in a Sports Illustrated, okay? Mm -hmm. And so I drove to New Jersey. I took a couple of days off work. I was teaching school, and I drove to the Monster Factory. Uh, I, I had a number in the background. I called it, and they said, yeah, come up, do this. And I got a little bit of a tryout, and they said, here's the deal. It's $3,000, no guarantees. And I say, you know, you got places to live, you got dorms, what's the deal, whatever. No, no guarantees, you know, blah, 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 and this and that. So I got in the ring for the very first time, and Charlie Fulton was there, who passed away here. Uh, of course, now Larry Sharp passed away, but it's the original Monster Factory. And I was like, damn, that's a long way from home, blah, blah, blah. I come home, but I had been rest. I had been writing all these people that I had this little address book for, that had all these wrestling promoters in it. And I wrote to this one person in Minnesota named Marvin Joel. And he sent me a flyer, wrote me a handwritten letter about the Malenko School, the Malenko Academy of Professional Wrestling in Tampa, Florida. And he said, the Malenkos were the best craftsmen in the business. And he had Joe, Dean, and of course, Professor Boris Malenko and a flyer and, and, a, and a business card and a handwritten letter and this and that. I called the number, um, and basically what happened, I knew I saved some money, and I knew, and I was teaching school, but I knew a couple friends where I had taken a vacation one summer for a couple weeks to Orlando, and I had seen a sign that said Tampa, like 88 miles, you know, and... Um, I didn't know anyone in Tampa, but I wrote wrote him back and said, I'd love to come. You know, do you have rooms? What's the deal? And then we started talking on the phone, and there was a lady named Phyllis Lee involved in it. And uh, so between her and, and Larry Malenko, Professor Boris Malenko, what happened was I started a communication process, and I packed everything I had into a little uh, Chevette. And let me tell you, you cannot kill a little Shabbat, a little Chevy Shabbat. <laughs> I had one that drove the son of a bitch that a wheel fell off, the windows fell out. I couldn't even tell you what happened to that little thing. But anyway, I moved to Orlando with two guys that were bartenders that said, hey, you can room with us, get a job at the restaurant, you can dig ditches, there's a fucking work here. It's Orlando. You work at Disney, you know. Yeah. And so, because there was no openings at the, uh, where they had the rooms at in Tampa. And I so what I would do, I wrote him, told him I was coming. I I moved to, to Orlando. I drove down one Saturday morning, and I met Professor Boris Malenko in person prior to his school opening. We sit down, we talked, spoke to him a few minutes. Um, he put me in a ring with the guy in there just sweeping the ring out, getting it ready. And, um, you know, he put me in there, and I had 10 or 15 matches because that local guy that had, quote, trained me didn't really smart me up. He just gotcha. said, there, there's a... Predetermined finish. We'll just leave it at that. And then, so I mostly had wrestled him. But <clears throat> at one point, um, the last time I worked in this area, prior to going to Malenko's, 
uh, a promoter came in and said, so-and-so, which I could not tell you who so-and-so was to this day, didn't show up. But the main event was this person was tagging with Buddy Landau against Hector Guerrero and Lasertron and Boogie Woogie, Jimmy Valiant. It was an NWA show, a lot of talent on it. And Buddy Landau looked at me and said, put me a fat boy right there. I had already worked a third match thinking it was a shoot other than it's finished, you know. <laughs> and uh, Buddy said, put me a fat boy right there. We'll, we'll, we'll go out there. And, and Buddy Landau and I walked out to the ring, and he said, just follow my lead, kid. And I was on the apron at this point, and I had been so-called trained, but not. And anyway, um, I watched for a few seconds, and I realized, holy shit, these guys are professionals. I saw Buddy get put in a top wrist lock. Buddy reached back and said, hey, he's got my hair, he's got my hair. And he pulled Lasertron's mask, and Lasertron, Hector, just laid down on the mat real easy. And I thought, holy shit, we're beating the fuck out of each other. These guys are, this This is what working is, you know. And so um, when I went to Malenko's, I told him, I said, man, I've had like 10 or 15 matches. I've been up in West, uh, Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio. And he said, Bobby, God bless those guys. He said, them guys up in Kentucky and West Virginia, he said, all they want to do is punch and kick and gouge in the eyes. And he said, if you'll just start me, forget everything what you think you know about professional wrestling, and let me start you from square one, I'll train you. I shook his hand, and I said, yes, sir. And we did it on a handshake deal. Dean was going to Japan quite a bit at that time. And so what happened was um, I went that day, he called me a little match. He said, Bobby, do this. The guy that had been sweeping the, the, the uh, ring out with name, Mike Steele. No one else was there other than myself and Mike Steele. I, I met Sean Walkman. I met several other people that eventually become friends of mine I trained with, etc. But this morning, um, he said, you know, Bobby, do this. Okay, and I showed him what my headlock was. And it wasn't right, but it was a headlock. And you know, I let him put, I'm fighting the guy, not, not hitting him, punching him in the face, but I'm He's trying to put me headlock, and I'm trying to block it, not knowing that I'm supposed to work with him, you know. Right. So, anyway, he, he again, he takes me outside. And by this, mother students come in, and I sit down, and I watch, and I see them learning that, that this is a work, you know. This is how you learn. And when he said to forget everything I knew and start from square one. And so I was there, loved it. And I drove down every Friday, would get a room sleep in my car and I would get up on Saturday mornings I drove from Orlando to Tampa I'd wrestle, I'd train on Saturdays usually um, they let me, uh, a room had opened where I could rent a room on Sunday nights uh, Friday nights and train again on let's see, Saturday and Sunday mornings and I'd drive back to Tampa and do it the following week, I'd come down on Friday night or I'd leave early enough on Saturday to train on Saturday and Sunday until that happened for about four months and a room actually opened up at the school. And by this time, Dean Malenko was there. And um, I rented a room um, off Phyllis, who had several wrestlers that she had put up. And I went four days a week for four months. And I never will forget the first time I was in a ring with, uh, and of course, Mr. Malenko, Larry Boris Malenko, took his time, was patient with me, taught me. And I, man, I picked up so much on conditioning and, and learning and, and listening and respect and honor and, and all the things we spoke about earlier. 
So the first time that I stepped in the ring with Dean Malenko, I was shaking like a fucking uh, leaf on a tree on a breezy ass fucking day, you know, like in, in Kansas during hurricane, you know, a tornado season rather. You know, I was like, holy shit, you know, it's Dean Malenko. And, and um, a guy went to do something. He was trying to teach us this little, uh, i never forget, it was a high knee lift. And um, I bent over and I moved. And, and, and Dean said, Bobby, listen to me. My dad's told me a lot about you. And I know you're an athlete. And I can see that from looking at you. Just as calm as I'm talking to you. And, and he said, in this ring right now, and in right here, everyone involved here. And he was just talking quietly. He wasn't trying to bury me. Wasn't, you know, putting himself over. He just talking to me. But we stopped and some other people. There's two rings at this point. And he says, I'm the least person here that you have to worry about or fear getting hurt by because I have the most experience. I'm not going to hurt you. Bend over, turn your head this away, and, and you'll feel what I'm going to do to you. And he gave me a high knee lift. And, you know, I bent over and I turned, you know, I looked to my right. He come from the left and... You know, I felt this knee come across my chest, and, and then from there, Dean and I developed this friendship, and from there was nothing, uh, obviously I had respect for him, but they also had these student shows, and by this time at four months, I started doing the student shows, and every time, Dean would say, Bobby, you want to ride? You want to ride me? And uh, he kind of took me under his wing. It was like, I don't know if Mr. Malenko would say, uh, Bobby, I won't be at this show this weekend, but uh, Dean will, and Dean no. It, for, for whatever reason, Dean said, Bobby, ride with me to Sarasota. Bobby, ride with me to Fort Myers. And, and, and of course, it saved me gas money because I didn't know, I didn't know anything about trans back then or anything. Right. But I'd go, and the whole time, Dean would just talk to me, and I'd listen. And there was another guy, my old tag team partner, I went to Canada with, I went to Australia with, the name of Rico Federico. And um, uh, uh, we'd sit there, and we'd keep our mouth shut, and uh, Dean would tell us this and tell us that. Then if it's just me and Dean at dinner one evening or another evening, or if I went to his house, I just had a special relationship uh, that, that Larry or Professor Borth Malenko said, you know, Dean, or something about this guy. And uh, it paid off because uh, Dean, um, Dean and I developed this really unique relationship. That even when I signed my WCW contract, you know, years later, and he was the first one I saw it out because I'd already seen him in a building when I was in Charlotte. And I said, Dean, here's what they're offering me. What do you think? He said, what are you making now? I knew what I was making now because Smoky Mountain had just shut down. I'm doing a whole bunch of independence. Mm -hmm. I'm like, uh, okay. He said, what would my dad tell you? He said, you got to fucking sign that thing. Are you fucking idiot? <laughs> you know, and so we have this relationship now. I talked to Jody, which is his oldest son, a whole lot more via Facebook and private conversation that way. Dean's not big on the social media thing. But but Dean and I have this relationship where I have nothing but respect for him. I love him to death. He's only a couple years older than me. And uh, we have this thing where we can, we, we can walk by each other. Fuck you, Dean. Fuck you, Bobby. Knowing we mean I love you. And laugh and turn back around and come back and shake hands or give each other a hug. And it's nothing but respect. Because for whatever reason, um, he, he just, uh, I think as far as that, and then when he started going back, when I went to Canada, Australia, South Africa, back to Canada, uh, blah, 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 Dean started going back to Japan where he had jumped to New Japan at that point instead of all Japan. And uh, I'd been in Australia with him, him and his brother, and he, they took us over there. Long story short, to where on Tuesday and Thursdays, or Tuesday and 
Wednesdays, rather, um, when Dean couldn't be there, I would go up and I would also do the help drive because I was getting so much more experience than everyone else. And this is, of course, a couple of years later, you know, so I was there for a long time around that family. And I considered them my family. I dedicated my first book to, to Larry, you know, Professor Boris Malenko. And in my second book, I wrote a story about how much I should have included Dean a lot more in my first book. But I really put him over, and I have nothing but respect for the whole Malenko family. But it all became, it was all because a gentleman in, in, in Minnesota that had visited the camp uh, wrote me a letter and said, I mean, it was an older gentleman that was just a huge wrestling fan, and he said, you know, Bobby, you need to go to this camp. This is the best place in the U.S. They have an academy, and the Malenkos are the best craftsmen in the business. And, and then, you know, as time went on, things developed because you're there, and I was there four days a week, two and three hours at a time for four months, and then one day, you know, guys like Carl Gotch walked in. They did shoot fighting on Sundays. Uh, they had training available four days a week. And it's not, all these opportunities were there. And any given Saturday, uh, those were open gyms where you could have anyone come in. I worked with uh, Brady Boone and Brian Blair and guys tuning up to go back to either WWF at the time or over to Japan. And one day, uh, Joe Malenko walked in, and I'd heard a lot about him. And, and, and Larry looked at me, and we hit him and I was sitting there, and Dean was in a ring teaching. And he goes, Bobby, he goes, uh, you have any plans this afternoon? And of course, it's Sunday, and it says like noon when, when camp's supposed to be over from 9 to noon on Sunday. And, uh, of course, big thing back then, you know, it was like NFL people watch Tampa Bay, and it's now, I don't give a fuck about football. You know, I don't know. You know, whatever. I'll go watch it. If one of these guys invite me to their house or I go back to my brother's place or whatever, yeah, I'll go watch the NFL game. Other than that, I ain't got jack off to do. And so Jody walked in and goes to the ring and he does some stuff. And um, he goes, I'd like you and Rico to stay. Uh, Jody's getting ready to do a, um, a, a Japan tour. He wants to do some tune-up and warm up. And I'm like, I start shaking. I go, yes, sir. Be glad to. When everyone cleared the building at noon, um, I got Rico and myself with Joe and Dean Malenko. Um, and, and Larry Stane was just us five. And then here I am with Joe Malenko, who just a couple years earlier had been the um, – all Asian um, uh, junior uh, junior tag uh, junior uh, champion of the world or whatever mm-hmm. I can't remember uh, for all Japan and then and at this point you know uh, Dean's you know working for New Japan now and you know it's, it's it's like I get to work out with these guys and I spent about an hour hour and a half just me my buddy Rico Professor Boris Malenko who stood on the apron and Joe Malenko and Dean Malenko just started to give me this root aggressive, uh, progressive, because they weren't aggressive, otherwise I'd be dead. <laughs> but no, just, just aggressive lessons and like, do this, do this, let me show you this. And they was just, they was trying to get their timing down, so we had to be where they wanted us to be, you know. But in doing that, I was learning, you know, so that was a great honor too, you know, just to step in the ring with those four guys uh, to actually wrestle, you know, uh, Let's do this for five minutes. Here we're doing, and then let's do this for five minutes, and for a whole hour, you know, just just learning. Um, it was it's like, I guess, if you were a karate person, and, and I thought about this just in the last year, I started, you know, I, you know, you read. I'm like I said, I mentioned I was an avid reader, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I watch videos uh, uh, like podcasts that are involved in and just different uh, disciplines and. Um, 
I guess it'd be almost like if you were studying under the great Bruce Lee, uh, like, uh, you know, James Colburn, uh, 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 Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Chuck Norris, all these guys that trained under Bruce Lee at one point, you know. Oh, yeah. It's like, I got to train with the Malenkos, the best craftsmen in the business, you know. So to me, it was, it was a badge of honor, if you will. Um Sorry, I rambled on. No, no, but, you no, know, that's, that's just how much respect I yeah, have for. Him. No, that's I actually yeah. I, I really enjoyed you taking the time to delve into that with some depth. That was yeah. Really cool. So that's what it was. That's what it amounted to. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, Bobby. So we've uh, we've kind of gone into overtime here. I still have a few questions for you. Can you hang sure. with me for about another ten, twelve minutes? You think? Brother, I sure will. And look, if I get rambling, say cut. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because here's the deal, man. The whole world. Someone at some point has helped you do something in your life. Oh, absolutely. And someone has done that for me. Yeah. And when that happens, it's all pay it forward, man. You know, I'm not rich. I, you know, I, I wish I saved every dime I had, but I didn't. Um, I'm not poor, but you know what? I have, a, I have a house over my head, you know, a roof over my head. I have an automobile. I have food to eat. I'm a blessed person. Yeah. And um, I, don't, I don't know if you're recording or not. It, it is recording, but I'm not going to use any fine. of this. Yeah. No, I was just saying. I'm just, uh, you know, to go back to the whole other thing we was talking about. I don't, I don't want to get us some big biblical or fucking, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, religious type thing. But I'm, man, I'm just, I'm happy to be alive, man. Yep, I, I follow. And I'm all about, here's the deal, uh, you know. Doing to others, doing to your, you, know, you want done to you, kind of that whole golden rule, however you want to say it, word it, whatever you want. But yeah. but I'm just blessed to be alive, have a roof over my head, have an automobile and have food. And uh, uh, I keep my circle tight, and the guys are in it, four or five guys, man, they check on me because I know how I am. And um, when I meet people through podcasts, through uh, webcasts, and et cetera, um, I'm loyal to that person I want, because I want to see people succeed. I've succeeded. Now, I've got to pay it forward and help other people succeed. And the way that works is is by doing your podcast. It, it helps me promote myself, but more importantly, it helps you also say, wow, they've got this guest, this crazy-ass Bobby Blaze. What, what, but he's making sense, yep. you know? And, and so it, it, it's one hand, you know, it's shaking hands. It's a handshake deal, man. Um, well, that's I'm, the whole deal. Yeah, I'm so. a big believer. Like, and this comes up a lot. You know, maybe I'll leave this section in because I'll, I'll cut out the part where you took the break. But I'll leave this in because yeah. this is a topic I like to hit. I try to be a promoter for everybody that I can. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, if, if I see that you've got a pin tweet and you know, fuck it, maybe a short story or may, you know, you may have a podcast and you got a really kick-ass interview or fuck it, you told a really good joke on it this week. I'm going to tweet the shit out of that. I'm going to recommend, you know, I'm going to tell people, hey, you need to go check this out. I, because nothing happens. I can dig it. Yeah, because nothing happens, man, until you fucking shake a hand. You know, I'm a, I'm a salesman. Yeah. I'm a plumbing salesman. That's what I do. And nothing happens until you sell something to somebody. Not one thing moves until you get out and turn somebody on to something. You know, and that's just. I, and isn't that funny? I mentioned yeah. being a plumber earlier. Be the fucking, the plumbers make good money. Be the best oh, fucking plumber. Hey. Be and you're a plumber salesman. Well, so I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll tell you this real quick, just because yeah. I'm just enjoying the shit out of talking to you. And then I'll ask you a couple questions. Cool. We'll wrap up. But uh, my wife and I, we lost a child about eight years ago to a drug overdose. Oh, 
during that time, we started watching this small Canadian TV show because nothing bad ever happened. And it was just, it was funny. It was something we all watched together. And then after she died, we kept watching it. Because of having my podcast, one of the stars from that TV show took me and my wife to dinner on my birthday in Vancouver when we visited this summer. The shit that you can do now, the people you can meet and shake hands with and get to know, uh, it's just amazing to me, the connections you can make now that you, literally, you couldn't have done it 20 years ago. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It just, it blows me away. Well, it's, you know, fuck, I saw you wrestle in the 90s, never thought I'd, I'd talk to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's... Well, my heart goes out to you because you lost a child. But but having been to Vancouver, I know there's so many TV shows that are shot there and stuff. And then you're telling me the story that the person took you out to dinner and you you and your wife and you, you met them and it's just it, it is it truly is amazing. Yeah. Um, but it's the thing you know I, I don't I, I don't know how to I'm gonna say it like I say it, but I I don't think we realize it until like you just now shared that story with me. It really is a small world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we don't think of it that way because it's so fucking huge. Six billion people or whatever inhibited in this fucking orb that's, uh, you know, third rock in the sun or whatever you want to call it. But we're all just trying to get along, man. We need love. We need caring. We need we need each other taking care of each other. And, man, there's so much other stuff that goes on. And when something like that happens that um, you could relate something like that to me, and uh, like you said, 20 years ago, it's, it, all this stuff is not possible, and um, now it is. And it's like, um, man, it's just about uh, it's about love. It's about paying it forward. It's about um, it's about trying to just be as positive as you can and moving forward. And um, man, there's just so much nastiness and hatefulness and uh, mean people in the world. And and uh, man, you. There's no need for that, man. When you can reach out and meet someone just like we're enjoying talking to each yeah. other, you know, it's just, uh, my heart goes out to you, you know, the child you lost. But, um, man, I can't even imagine that. But but then you look at some of the good that come from that, you know, the positive. I won't oh, say yeah. good, but the positive that's come from that, you know, that, that's probably brought you and your wife closer. And, and then also in your in your soul, some, that there's closure there that you have this TV show and you met this person and they're yep. like, wow, well, you know, it's a big circle, man. Yeah, and Bobby, world. I'm going to, I'm going to draw the focus on wrestling here. After we yeah. had that happen, I told my wife about the Von Eric family. Yeah. And I, I don't even think I realized at the time that Kevin was the only one left. I thought, I th- think I thought there was somebody else out there too, but then we watched the, uh, the documentary that was made about them. And, yeah. and it was one of those things where we kind of went like, you know, every time I think I've got it bad, I need to remember Somebody's got it worse. Yeah. And that was one that was just like a huge thing to me. Uh, that actually, watching that's what kicked off my my interest in classic wrestling again. I, I didn't mean to get all modeling on everybody, but it happens from time to time. No, no. Yeah. Um, so, Bobby, I'm going to do this real quick. Just just to ask, I, you know, I had a whole bunch of questions I wanted to ask you about, you know, your authoring and publicity that you've done since you published through Amazon. Would you uh, make a commitment to me to come back on sometime in the next few months and we'll focus specifically on that? 
100% absolutely I sure will. Okay, great. Be more than glad to. Yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm having a blast hearing you tell stories and stuff. I do want to talk to you real quick about the state of pro wrestling in the current uh, environment. I'm not going to focus on the, you know, now that we're all, you know, winked in on the the facts behind it, but would you say that any title belt out there, uh, whether it's world or, you know, uh, federation-wide, are there any belts that still have the um authenticity or feeling of prestige to them the way the old NWA title did? Uh, I know it's a weird question to hit you out of nowhere. No, no, it's a great question. I could go on forever, but my short answer is no, because in my second book, I talk about that a little bit. To me, the NWA World Heavyweight Championship title, that strap, that belt, whatever you want to call it, it really had the prestige, and it meant something. And you think about this. The NWA champion, and I'm going to make this brief, but the NWA champion, he traveled from territory to territory and defended that title. Any given night, he could be wrestling in Tampa, Florida, to Dallas, Texas, Texas to, to, to San Francisco, to, to Oklahoma, to, to wherever, okay? And he covered a lot of ground, a lot of flights, um, you know, uh, Kansas City, you know, stronghold, Dallas, a stronghold, uh, Tampa, a stronghold, whatever. That NWA champion did that night in and night out. And, and also, that's my account of international tours. The thing about it is, when you go back, whether you go WWE, WWF, or excuse me, WWF, WWF, and all that, basically, those champions, uh, and I won't name names because you can go back and do all the history you want on those. Sure. Those guys defended the title in a in a northeastern region of the United States. They worked a certain group of guys that already worked in that territory. You know, that the smaller territory, the NWA champion worked all around the world, night in, night out, and had to be prepared every night, sometimes twice a day, you know, doing double shots here and there. And I don't know if there was ever a more prestigious title in a world of professional wrestling in my eyes than the NWA World Heavyweight Champion at any given time. Yeah. I can see something coming up here that I wonder if the IWGP title may be that big of a prize coming up. Because, I mean, they're starting to travel all over the world and, yes. and they treat it like a legit sport, not this yes. you know, fucking cartoon show that comes out of the Northeast. And I didn't want to get into the whole Japanese deal, Yeah, but, but, but I agree with you 100%. I can see that happening with their title and their tag title, uh, titles rather. But I can see that happening because something good could come out of that. I do see that. Yeah. But um, if you're just going one company that we all see and you have to, pay for this and buy the, the monthly thing or whatever the fuck you want to do or whatever. To me, that's all just, um, uh, I, I, I just can't get into that. So I don't watch a lot of, uh, you know, whatever. I'm not downbeating them because I think every athlete or professional wrestler that wants to be someone, that's where you need to be at. Strive to be there. That's where you're going to make the most money, get the most exposure, uh, blah, blah, blah. But going back to the original question, yeah, I can see Japan, uh, the, uh, that title doing something, but also the NWA title. I don't know that any title at any given time 
had more prestige than the NWA yeah. title in its heyday when it actually meant something. Um, and you actually wrestled Dan Severn for the NWA title. Yes, I wrestled for it twice, uh, once in Charlotte, North Carolina. Actually, I wrestled for it um, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and also in Knoxville, Tennessee. And then um, uh, I, Chris Candido, I think at one time he was a contender, and we was battling back and forth as to who was going to wrestle for the NWA you know, heavyweight title. But um, um, I, I would beat him, and then it just never would, you know, happen that, you know, because he ended up going to the WWE after and then WWE at the time. But, yeah, I got to actually, to me, that's one of my top things was um, um, that I wrote one of my books. Uh, I brought it up in a second book. I, I brought both up. Both Dan Severn matches are in my book. The first one has the first match. The second one has the second match. And um, Dan Severn had just came off the uh, UFC, you know, winning the title match mm-hmm. uh, and uh, was NWA champion. And, uh, yeah, so I had a chance to actually wrestle for it. But to me, at that point, it had lost a little bit of prestige. That's when it was losing some steam, but it was trying to get the steam back on it. You know what I'm saying? Yep. It wasn't back when, um, you know, and I, and I had the pleasure of meeting so many um, NWA heavyweight champions in my life is it, it, incredible. When I go back and look at them all, um, I got to meet Dory Funk, Terry Funk, uh, uh, Jack Briscoe. I got to meet uh, Harley Race, Ric Flair, you know, Terry, uh, Tommy Rich, you know. So I got to meet a, a lot of former NWA champions, and and, and to go for that title, um, call it what you want, but I got to actually wrestle for that title. Those men wore. Uh, it meant something to me. There was a sense of pride, if you will, in that title um, versus it, had I went to, say, New York or whatever, I don't know that I would ever have gotten to go for yeah. a title that someone had, you know, that at one point was a regional, uh, which now, you know, globally and international, obviously, it's just great. But, um, yeah, that was... That title me meant the world. Um, that was to me was the best in the world at that time. Um, you know, like I said, I met Ric Flair uh, and all those guys. But um, whoever wore that title, man, that that was the man. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah, that made it. I don't know. There's something about that belt that just made it seem that much more legit. Just its yes. lineage and everything. You know. Yes. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. And you did. Now, when you worked for Jim Cornette's uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Uh, Jim Cornette and he had some business partners. I don't want to leave them out, but uh, you did get to uh, represent that uh, that brand as the champion. Um, was it pretty? I mean, were you like kind of overcome with that much trust being put on you as a person? I mean, was that like just the coolest fucking thing ever? Or give me a little idea about that. Well, you know, um, I had been speaking to Jim for about nine months before he actually went full time. So he was aware of who I was uh, through a couple, uh, he, through Tommy Rich, or shit, excuse me, uh, Tommy Rogers, and then through uh, Bobby Fulton and Dean Malenko. And um, I went in for a tryout. Robert Gibson had gotten hurt, and I went in, filled in some matches, worked with Dr. Tom Pritchard, and um, uh, Brian Lee, Tom Pritchard, et cetera, does some house shows. And uh, uh, Jimmy approached me because, like I said, nine months took time before I even got the tryout. 
And he was like, Bobby, you know, what's your schedule look like for coming in full time? And he had told me for several months, you know, when a position opens up, you're coming in. And so uh, first, um, I was like all for it. I've done a couple of TVs. I won't give away spoilers because they're doing them on another podcast right now. They're following it. Um, but the bottom line was eventually um, they put a junior heavyweight title on me that no one else had at that time. It was a beautiful title. Uh, that Scott Armstrong actually owned the belt, and I did that with Candido, had a good run. And then um, Jimmy asked me to take a couple months off. I've got an idea for you. Uh, you want to go to Memphis? You want to go to Puerto Rico? Just go somewhere and work. And um, long story short, I heard the guys. I talked to Dutch, talked to to uh, Glenn Jacobs at the time, and, and the Stro, and like, hey, Bobby, we're not getting paid, and this and that. And I'm like, uh, Dutch, and Dutch, tell me, you know, blah, blah, blah. But bottom line is, I like, I didn't want to go to Puerto Rico. I, I just I just had a feeling like, you know, and then I talked to Randy Hells of Memphis. He's like, well, you're going to get this and get that. And I said, you know what? I'm already making money uh, doing this, being I was a personal trainer at one time. You could tell by looking at me now probably. But I was making money within five minutes of my home. And then also I was working a lot of independence and where I had been on Smoky Mountain. These independents were paying me very good. So I was like, I was already making good money. So I took that time off. And what happened? I had just done a radio interview up in West Virginia for some shows I was promoting and going to be in one. I stopped by my house and um, I had a phone call. I only had like 20 or 30 minutes before I had to leave to the next town in Tennessee. And Cornette was going to be in one town for Smoky Mountain. And I was going to be on a local show down there. It's an outlaw show, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I picked up the phone because I saw his number and the ID back before cell phones. And we start talking. And Jimmy says, Bobby, I got this great idea. And he starts telling me the idea. He said, just do me a favor. Don't tell anyone. What do you think? And he told me the whole deal. This kind of laid it out for me. He said, now listen, I gotta get, I'm getting ready to go on the road. And I said, Jimmy, I am too. Great talking to you. I've always had a great respect for him. Um, I'm a Cornette guy. Um, you know, he put me to work, and, and some time had passed, and this and that. I had been gone for like two and a half, almost three months, which he'd asked me to stay away from. Now, I put a mask on or a hood on or whatever, and that's some local shows that were for an hour distance of my home, and no one knew it was me because I did this and did that, and, and it saved them some money, and I made some money or whatever, but it wasn't Bobby Blaze. Okay, say that. It wasn't Bobby Blaze. But anyway, um, so I said, well, Jimmy, I'm getting ready to go here. And he said, I'm going here. And um, so he said, let me call you back. He said, when you back in town? I said, probably late Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. He said, it's 10 o'clock on Sunday evening too late to call you. And I said, no, I'll be home by then. He said, me too. So he, we spoke briefly. He said, don't tell anyone. I didn't. Sunday night came. He called. He said, let me get some information, Bobby. And we sat there, we spoke, and we talked, and just like you and I are talking. And um, I think the only people that knew was, at that point, was Jimmy, myself. He had spoken to Law over the weekend, which he had, which was one of his goals. I think he knew that, you know, obviously he wasn't going to be there long term for the switch. And then, of course, Sandy Scott and um, uh, Brian, uh, Mark Curtis, Brian Hildebrand. I think us five were the only ones that knew at that particular point, and he said, don't say anything. And he said, uh, I'll get back to you on Tuesday. They'd done TV on Monday. He got back to me on Tuesday. He said, here's your starting date. Here's where I want you at, Knoxville Civic Coliseum. 
And so to have that trust put on me, it was one of those things where I felt like, okay, the office has put enough faith in me. You know, Jim Cornette uh, at that time, Sandy Scott, Mark Curtis, I felt like they were kind of the office, if you will. But also some of the boys, you know, like, okay, um, we're going to do this and, and let's see what happens. And if it makes money, it makes money. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But let's try to make some money. And, um, um, you know, we went to Sunday, Buddy Sunday, and I'm sitting backstage. I win the first match in, you know, five minutes, seven minutes, whatever it was. Um, and then I go back out there, and um, no one's bled on the show. And I'm thinking, this show's called Sunday, Buddy Sunday. So I'm thinking, I know something's up, you know. <laughs> so uh, I go out there and I wrestle uh, Lawler, upset Jerry King Lawler. What a, you know, fucking upset that is. And then it's, and then it's, he beat me down, beat me down. Then there's Buddy Landell. And, you know, Buddy comes in and goes, well, Bobby, I guess it's me and you. Boom, boom, boom. Next thing you know, of course, someone's bleeding during that match. And you can guess who it is. It's me. And it's Sunday, <laughs> Buddy Sunday. And uh, there I am carrying that Smoky Airway title. And um, uh, I tell all about it. Uh, the whole Smoky Mountain Run title, I put SMW uh, title run uh, in Pin Me, Pay Me, which is available on Amazon. Uh, you can download it for $4.99 or the book is $14.99. If you'd rather have a you know hardback copy of it, but um, there's a cheap plug. Uh, but anyway, hey, um, yeah, I was elated, man, that yeah. Jimmy took that much, uh, had that much faith in me to put the strap on me, and also the whole thing about the wrestling business is is putting someone's butt every 18 inches apart um, and, and and drawing. You know, now I'm not saying I drew more than anyone else or drew less than anyone else or whatever, but you have a plan. And that was part of Jimmy's plan here where we're going to go with this. And, you know, I, I had that most prestigious title. Um, you know, we were out drawing at WCW in Knoxville on a regular basis. We were out drawing WCW in um, uh, Johnson City, Tennessee. So Smoky Mountain was a strong product at that time. And uh, to be a part of that was a big deal. And that that, that kind of, you know, they already had a Jimmy at that point started, you know, veering off with uh, WWF, having a working relationship with them. So, um, you know, for that time period, it was what it was. It's, it, you can consider a regional uh, title. You consider it, it was, a, a, it was, but it was a nationally recognized promotion. And uh, it helped me get over and, um you know, it's one of the best things I, I can't ever, um, and, I, and I always tell when I see him in person, I'll see him next month at WrestleCade, I cannot ever thank Jim Cornette for ever what he'd done for my career in the U.S. to give me my first U.S. break, because I've mentioned the other, some of the other tours I've been on, you know, yeah. and um, that's the thing. Uh, I have nothing but respect, and, and all I can say is like, you know, like his shirt, his shirt says, I'm a Cornette guy, you know, and I'm one of these guys. I told him in March, we was at WrestleCon, or not WrestleCon, I'm sorry, we was at uh, Comic-Con together. And I said, we got heat over one thing, Jimmy, because he came out with his shirt, and I thought of it, and I thought of it, and I thought of it, but I never would do it. And uh, and uh, Jim Cornette finally came out with his shirt about, about a year ago, a year ago, November, and said, thank you, fuck you, bye. And I thought, Jim... And as soon as I saw him, I hugged him. I told him I loved him. Thank you very much. It's good to see you. We had a booth together, side by side, rather, at this big old Comic-Con in Lexington, Kentucky. 
huge, huge appearance. I was with Al Snow and a bunch of other guys were there, but Al Snow and I shared a table. And I said, Jim, of course, we never had heat. We had a few words here and there through the years. You can't work for someone for three years and not have words. But sure. it was all, it all works out. But I said, Jim, I said, man, I have had said this for fucking years. I used to tell people, thank you, fuck you, bye. You know, and you come up the t-shirt and good for you. And um, so go buy you a Jim Cornette t-shirt. I'm a Cornette guy. Go buy you. Uh, I've got t-shirts too, but I'm telling you, Cornette was so good to me. I'm plugging this fucking t-shirt on your show, man. <laughs> so, of course, buy Pin Me, Pay Me, my book on Amazon. But hell, go buy a damn Cornette t-shirt, you know. Tell him Bobby Blaze sent you. I don't care. I'll see him at WrestleCade. I hope to give the guy a hug. We worked a show together where um, I refereed. He was special manager. Austin I was special manager at Rock and Roll Express versus uh, Brian Christopher and um, the Mass Superstar. And I got the referee and uh, Cornette. Just, you know, it's great to see him. So I, I do things with Jim here and there. We speak here and there. And I love the guy to death. I can't say enough good things about him. So anytime, if you ever heard me badmouth Jim Cornette, you're like, what? Bobby wouldn't do that. So it's, you know, but it's one of those things where I came up to him. And I was like, man, I, I've said that to people for years. And you put her on a T-shirt and it goes over. And he comes back with some number. He says, and I won't give it away because it's his deal. It's his business. He goes, yeah, I've already sold this amount of them. And I'm ready to reorder. And I'm like, God, oh, you motherfucker. Fucker, you! I wish I'd have come up with that, but but I did. I'm, I did, but I didn't come up with the actual T-shirt, you know. Yeah. But uh, that's that. But yeah. That devil's always in the details. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Hey, Bobby. And good I, for him. Yeah. Bobby, I really appreciate you doing this. My wife is flicking the dinner switch on me, though, so i got to start wrapping yeah. up now. Um, yeah. Hey, it's been great talking to you. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know. Next time, we will get more into your writing side and what you've done to kind of get word out about your book, sure. this, that, and the other. I, hell, this has just been a lot of fun, though, so I didn't want to break our, tra our uh, train of thought at all. Bobby, yeah. in the meantime, where can people find you online, social media, or anywhere that you want to plug? Okay, the easiest way to find me, I'm on Twitter more than anything. I'm at BobbyBlaze744. BobbyBlaze744. It's Bobby Blaze Smedley. But on Bobby Blaze, 747 bore my, 7 being my football number, 44 being my basketball number. I'm on Instagram, Bobby Blaze, 744. I'm on Facebook. I'm not a huge Facebook guy. I post one post a day. I try to get caught up in it. I used to love it, but now I'm a Twitter guy. I've been on Twitter. I love it to death. i got 155,000 followers. I love it to death. That's where I met you at. Yep. Uh, go visit the uh, Geekish Cast. Uh, on uh, Twitter, you know, uh, go visit the geekiscast.com, uh, visit the website. But um, on Facebook, I'm under Bobby Blaze Smedley, or there's also a fan page that has about 2,000 people. That's just Bobby Blaze Athlete. Um, there's an athlete listed. I don't know if I'm an athlete anymore or an athletic supporter. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, the easiest way, honestly, tell people you heard me on this podcast. Say, hey, I'm a listener, I'm a fan whatever, um, but it's under Bobby, at BobbyBlaze744 on Twitter, and, um, you know, that's where I do most of my, you know, that's where I meet people, talk to people, and, and uh, I just find that Facebook, not, to, not to, to put it down or anything, like, people get into all their personal drama on there, they can write so much, and I don't want to read all that, you know, I want to see good, positive 
feedback. So my Twitter feed is all about books and authors. It's about professional wrestling and professional wrestlers. And it's about podcasts. I keep it very, very positive. So uh, that's why I love my fitter, my fitter. My Twitter feed so much. Find me at Bobby Blaze 744. Tell me you heard me on a podcast. Put it over. Put Jeremy over. Go to her link. Follow the the the, um, the website and um, you know find me on Amazon. I'm under Bobby Blaze Smedley on Amazon. If you just type in pin me, pay me, it comes up. My books come up. There's all of them on there. There's three on there right now. I do. I have a couple other books that I have short stories in under other authors books but my main two books are pin me pay me have boots will travel and also the education of a wrestler i kicked out on too and you can download it or you can buy the book or you can write me personally and um i hear the dinner the dog's ready to eat brother yeah, he's, I hear ready to there. he's ready to go so i wrap it up write me personally and you can get an autographed copy of my book uh the same price you can on amazon but i'll sign it and send it out to you so get a hold of me, Bobby Play 744. That's awesome. Hey, Bobby, thanks again. Everybody else, you can catch us at geekishcast.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekishcast. I tweet from at the geekishcast. Get your asses on Amazon. Get out there, buy Bobby's book. Show him some love uh, for taking the time to do this. In the meantime, everybody, we'll catch you later. Geekishcast is a Vias and Victor production and is part of the Astro Panda Productions Network. You can find us now on SoundCloud and on Blog Talk Radio. Our theme music is taken from the song Out to Get Mine by Reign of Zeus. Check them out at reignofzeus.net.